I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. Now that's a podcast. And that went everywhere. Oh, nice. Jeez. Uh, hello, gentlemen. Hello, Jesse. Hello, Jesse. Oh, that's a, that brings back the old memories. How are you guys doing? Life is good. No complaints. Well, that's because you haven't had time to actually think about complaints. Yeah. I bet you you could if you really tried. Yeah, I'm all full of Zuzu's pedals right now, man. Zuzu's pedals. I don't know what that is. Oh well, because you're it's because you're a millennial. What tell him, Chris? Uh, it's only from the most famous Christmas movie ever, Muppet Christmas Carol. <laughs> Close. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a Wonderful Life. Remember, he goes up to visit Zuzu, who's sick in bed, and her flower wants a drink of water. Some I have never seen that movie. Oh, start you're kidding, Jesse! <laughs> wow, man! Wow, some wow. liturgy guy you are. But wow. I have seen the Christmas episode of several. Uh, family Matter episodes, so that that counts, right? Oh, um, no, against you. Miracle on Twenty Third Street. I've never one? seen that one. I've never seen Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street ever, ever, ever. Huh. See, I'm not alone. Anyway, you know, we uh, last time we we met up, we were actually in Atchison, Kansas, right, Ooh. Dennis? Yes. That was so much fun. That was a lot of fun to sit down and. And the video of the first podcast is online. Um, on you YouTube? Can, we, we've posted it on our Liturgical Institute Facebook page, but it's also on the Excorde uh, Facebook page. It's on YouTube. So you can watch us uh, film a, a podcast in front of a live studio audience, which was great. Um, we didn't have any one of like, those applaud signs, so nobody's clapping. I suppose if we would have had <laughs> one of those, there would have been more... Uh, audience participation. We did get hissed, though, as I remember. Right <laughs> did at the we? beginning. People only started talking. People were hissing at us. Hey, we didn't have a hiss sign. No, I we know. didn't. Man, we should address that. Uh, but that was really fun. Uh, Dennis, thank you so much for inviting us out there to do that. Uh, oh, I hope we get to do it coming. again. You, the, the students there were so engaged with our topic. It was just amazing to see. And, of course, all the great stuff that is happening at Benedictine. And a huge shout-out to the uh, media group that is helping us. The, those guys did a really, really great job. And so, Excorde, uh, they're called. From the heart. Excorde Ecclesiae is the reference, of course. Yeah. And then there's a subgroup, Extension Corde, where if they, <laughs> they need extra power for their cameras. <laughs> umbilical Corde. Uh, umbilical Corde. Um, so anyway, that's the maternal health oh, Bungee Corde. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. So needless to say, you know, we've we've run a couple of, uh, we've run a rerun episode. We have this ex Corde stuff that had been coming out. So this episode, uh, we just want to get back to the general instruction of the Roman Missal, where we were before some of this. And uh, Chris, do you want to remind us where we left off? Oh, Yeah. Uh, let's see. Well, we were we we were looking through the order of mass, and I think we were still in the midst of uh, number one, 
Right, so it, uh, in the in the Roman Missal, you have this section right in the center that uh, takes you right through the order of the Mass, and each paragraph or section is numbered. And we were in. Uh, uh, well, if you don't mind, I'll just go back and read what. Uh, it's halfway what it's, through uh, the podcast season, oh, and know. we're on number one. Does <laughs> anybody listen to this anymore? By the way, I do. Okay, well. There, there's something, I guess. So the order of mass number one says uh, when the people are gathered, and I think we did a podcast on what it means to assemble together, right? So we did a whole podcast on that. Then we talked about uh, the priest approaches the altar with the ministers, and we did an entire podcast on the entrance procession and who's in it. And uh, yeah, I think we did one on what they wear uh, before mass began. So we talked about uh, vestments and then uh, we did one on what the on the entrance chant, and uh, we looked through the various options for the entrance chant. And I think uh, was that the last one we did on singing the entrance chant. I believe so. Yes. Is that right, Dennis? Were you there for that? I was there, but it was so long ago now, and my memory. So He's bad. not even here for this. Yeah, I'm here. <laughs> All right. So now we're up to uh, when he has arrived at the altar. After making a profound bow with the ministers, the priest venerates the altar with a kiss and, if appropriate, incenses the cross and the altar. So I thought maybe we could, uh, uh, if we're snappy about this, we could get through that one sentence on this. What's a so, profound bow? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, what is a, well, that, how many types of bows are there, do you know? Well, there's the bow of the head, right? Yeah. Sim- is that a simple bow? Is that what that's called? Profound bow is from the waist, correct? Is that right, Chris? Yeah, yeah. So there's uh, there's two. Let's see. This is so in the general instruction of the Roman Missal, right? So we're taking as kind of the uh, the baseline, the order of mass, but then it makes reference back to uh, the general instruction. So it says here uh, a bow signifies, and uh, that that word's a good one for a sacramental Ooh. theologian, right? What's your paragraph number, Chris? Uh, two seventy five. Two seventy five. Okay. Because what uh, what is a sacrament or a sacramental? Or An efficacious sign. Sign, sign, sign. So a bow signifies. So it's 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 showing something. It's manifesting something. And what does it show? Well, it says here, reverence and honor shown to the persons themselves or to the signs that represent them. Yeah. Okay, so who who Jesus whom what Right. <laughs> in, uh, in the altar, right? So you stole my life. They're mm-hmm. bowing. They're making a profound bow. Is that what it said? A profound bow? They make a bow to the uh, altar. And why are they bowing to the altar? Because the altar is, Jesse? Jesus. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. That's what the right of dedication of a church says. The altar is the architectural rendition of Christ standing amidst his people. So imagine grandpa was there and you're like, great to see you, grandpa. Think how more profound it is. Instead, you just say, bow now, brown cow. Nice. Now, I, I, Do I hear Dennis, cricket? Me... I hear crickets. What? Anyway. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> oh, come yeah. on. I want to press this point a little bit before, right? Because part of the ins- inspiration, I guess, for doing this is Traditionis Custodes, right? Who, um, you know, the, the letter wants... You should have said trigger warning before the, you said that. The letter day. wants uh, the ordinary form to be celebrated according to the tradition, according to the council, according to the books, according to the needs of the people. And, you know, I think um, many, many of us who have uh, sympathies with uh, uh, the extraordinary form or the, uh, you know, the preconciliar liturgy, you know, you think about what an altar used to look like, say, 100 years ago, you know, especially when you compare it to some of these. Uh, ugly altars that you see today, 
But I mean, Dennis, I mean, take us back a hundred years and describe what the altar would have been like. And, 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 you know, I guess in the end, you know, tell us, is, have we made any uh, uh, progress in, uh, in an altar these days? Well, there's always the high end top 1%, but in, you know, your average sort of Gothic revival church, chances are your altar would have been plaster or wood painted to look like marble. And the altar itself would have been a one square foot piece of stone called the altar stone that had consecration crosses and, and relics in it. But the altar, properly speaking, was one square foot of marble, even though there were all kinds of shelves and statues and uh, pointy Gothic spires on it. The altar itself was not very big. And so many people are arguing the altar should be freestanding and com made completely of stone like the basilicas in, in Rome. This is way before they thought about versus populum liturgy facing the people. Yeah, so isn't that, I mean, because, right, I, th I think a lot of people that have a, a, a natural uh, reaction to say, oh, well, these altars used to be so big and beautiful and had the reredos and have uh, these statues and, uh, you know, whatever the level of craft, at least looked like something real beautiful. Right. But in the fact, altarpiece it, was nice. The altar screen was uh, nice, but uh, the altar itself. Yeah, it's like gilding the lily. You don't know what, what's but, what. But to think that the alt, you know, the most important thing in the church had been somehow reduced to a square foot that's, you know, an inch thick and then set into, a, you know, possibly a larger platform that itself was only, you know, 18 inches uh, in depth. I mean, that's... That, that's not good sacramentality or signification mm -hmm. or things like that. And hollow in the back. The people used to store stuff under it in the back, underneath the altar, because it was hollow. So they, they called them the packing crate altars where they mm. they just would put stuff in it. Well, I you know, that just that was something that came to my mind when I was reading this is that, um, you know, despite whatever ugly altars you may have come across, you know, in the last 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 or 40 years, uh, and probably they could be very ugly. And if they're supposed to be Jesus, that's not uh, that's not a good, that's not a good sign, so to speak. But the uh, the, the condition prior to the council, in, in many cases too, was not ideal uh, either. So this is something we're still working towards. If anybody's ever been to St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City, they had one of those wedding cake altars, as they used to call them, and they took it down in 1942, right in the middle of World War II, and built this beautiful bronze baldacchino over it. So it still holds the room. It's still delightful to look at. It's still very, um, you know, gold and shiny and full of angels and everything. But the altar underneath it is freestanding and it's stone. And you could see the candlesticks and the cross and everything. That's what they had in mind for the renovation of altars, not turning them into flimsy little wooden picnic tables of, of polished uh, wood. So you, you get a little bit of the idea and then it boomerangs too far in the other direction. And now people want to boomerang in the other direction. Oh, just get the old 19th century arrangement back. We want to stay in the good liturgical movement middle here and say, what's the nature of the altar and how do we bring it out? And therefore it's worthy of worthy of kissing. Yeah. Like you, Chris. Right, well, before, yeah, I wouldn't say that. Uh, but we're still bowing at this point. So if you go back to the germ at uh, number uh, 275, it says there's two kinds of the bows. There's, uh, let's see. Well, first of all, there, yeah, honor shown to persons or the signs that represent them. There's a bow of the head and a bow of the body. So a bow of the head is made uh, when the three divine persons are named together and the names of Jesus, of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and the saint in whose honor the Mass is being celebrated. All right, so that's when you would make a bow of the head. And I think, you know, obviously, that well, this is most clearly speaking to the priest and the ministers, but I think anybody in the church uh, would do similar, 
bow the head at Jesus, Mary, the saint of the day, or the divine persons. But I think most people don't do that. And I think that would be awesome if we could bring this back. People love the reverence of the extraordinary form and all the bowing and the coming and kneeling and standing up and moving. And then why don't we do that here? Every time the saint of the day is named or the Blessed mm-hmm. Virgin Mary or Jesus or the divine persons, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. bow your head. Agree. Jesse? I'm doing it now. Okay. <laughs> Jesus. And a bow of the body, which is also called a profound bow, and that's the one that uh, the Order of Mass mentions, is made to the altar as it says there, uh, in the creed at the words and by the Holy Spirit became man. And then the priest himself will make a few profound bows uh, as well too. All right. So that's what happens when the priest gets to the altar. Now, what do you see sometimes happening? Not a bow, but a genuflection. Yeah, a genuflection. Now it says here, this is a confusing thing. I mean, it's confusing to me, but so should, well, should the ministers bow to the altar or genuflect to the blessed sacrament of the tabernacle? The altar. Mm. Well, well, yeah, doesn't it, doesn't the altar have pride of place when the mass starts? I mean, that's. Well, I think it does, but the, I suppose this is the question: is when does mass start? The sign of the cross, or is it the entrance chant? Or I don't know. I mean, it's a proper text for the mass. Let's well, let's go back to the German, see what it says, and see if that uh, clarifies anything. So a uh, genuflection, what's genuflection mean, literally? Or what's what's its root? Ground, it's uh, touching the ground or something? I think it's it? knee, isn't it? Knee, what's the, okay. what's the Latin word for knee? I think it's something like that. Uh, made by bending the right knee to the ground signifies, there's that word again, adoration. And therefore, it is reserved for the most blessed sacrament as well as for the Holy Cross during the adoration on Good Friday until the Easter Vigil. During Mass, three genuflections are made by the pre-celebrant. When he comes in. uh, It doesn't say that. No, it doesn't say that. uh, Isn't that crazy? Well, not yet. Not yet. Well, hang on. It says, uh, after the elevation of the host, the elevation of the chalice, and before communion. Okay. Then it says, if, however, the tabernacle with the most blessed sacrament is situated in the sanctuary, the priest, deacon, and other ministers genuflect when they approach the altar... And when they depart from it, right? But mm-hmm. not during the celebration of Mass itself. So and that is uh, the text. It's confusing. All right. So I suppose it's how you interpret this. You're approaching the altar, but there's a, what does it say here? Um, uh, blessed sacrament in the sanctuary, you would genuflect. But that, that line, Jesse, not during the celebration of Mass itself, I think... Um, most people interpret this as mass hasn't begun until, say, something like the sign of the cross. And so, but yeah, if mass has not begun uh, until the sign of the cross, if why do why do they kiss the altar? Why the altar reverence? Uh, because outside of mass, the principal quote unquote furnishing or whatever is the tabernacle. Mm-hmm. But inside of mass, it's the altar. So, so if we're showing right and proper reverence to the altar before the sign of the cross, at least to me, that would be indicative of the mass beginning. Yeah. Yeah. It's look, a at, look at me talking like a liturgiologist yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the genuflection on the way in, then step up to the altar and kiss the altar. That seems like what I see a lot. That, That's what I it, see a lot too. And is it, that legit? It seems uh, uh, in the absence of anything 
absolutely clear and definitive in the form of a dubium or something like that. It seems reasonable to me. Yeah. I think partly what they're responding to is in the extraordinary form every time they moved. I mean, how many genuflections are in the extraordinary form? There's so many. Every time they moved, they genuflected in front of the tabernacle. And the altar servers are doing that, you know, running back and forth maybe 20 times in a, yeah. in a mass. And so my guess is this is a response to that. Yeah, very possibly. Anyway, let me just wrap up this uh, 274 there. It says, uh, otherwise, all who pass before the Blessed Sacrament genuflect, unless they're in a procession, and ministers carrying the processional cross or candles bow their heads instead of genuflecting, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got this whole troop of ministers coming forward, and that's uh, what they do is they approach the altar. And it's, that you know... Seems Seems practical. You don't want to be spilling wax on people or crashing the uh, bottom of the cross on the floor or anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. All right. Hey, let's before we go into the next one. I mean, what's the gist of genuflecting or bowing anyway? It says here it signifies honor, signifies uh, adoration. I read this. Uh, if I can answer my own question, doing a, I started a deacon practicum course with uh, guys in formation to be ordained deacons within the Diocese of La Crosse recently. We're looking at some of these things. And uh, we're reading at Romano Gardini's um, Sacred Signs. Either you guys read that or at least parts of it? He puts it this way, is when you genuflect, you sacrifice half of your height mm -hmm. in hmm. honor and reverence of God. So... I've thought of that, about that before, you know, when you get knighted by, by the king or the queen or something, you have to kneel down and they take the sword and they put it on one side of your head and the other side. Basically, you put yourself in a position where you are defenseless. You, that sword could just take your head off, you know, but this, I'm showing my loyalty to you by submitting to your uh, kindness not to murder me. <laughs> to you, uh, do you know this line from, uh, I first came across it in uh, Ratzinger's The Spirit of the Liturgy about this uh, desert father had this image of uh, the devil and what his unique feature was. He had no knees. He had no knees. Mm -hmm. yeah, he could not submit. Um, so anyway, yeah, all of that, you know, to genuflect, whether you're a lay person going into the pew, uh, ministers in the sanctuary, I mean, that's it. It's, it's a sign, an expression of adoration, of reverence, of humility, of, uh, I don't know, of love and obedience before before God. And there's a hierarchy there too, right? So, I mean, the genuflection is probably more reverent than a profound bow, and a profound bow is probably more reverent than a bow yeah. of the head, right? Yeah, good. Yeah. See how ordered this is? All right. All right, let's go back to order of, speaking of order, order of mass number one. Let's see. After making a profound bow with the ministers, except those carrying processional cross and candles. The priest venerates the altar with a kiss. What's up with that? It's because Judas gave Jesus a kiss, <laughs> right? Well, there is the kiss of betrayal versus the kiss of honor, that's for sure. Maybe you think how uh, scandalous that kiss of betrayal is, though, precisely because a kiss expresses something that is so much more than that, you know, of, uh, well, you know, love and adoration and uh, the rest. Um, stop me if I've, uh, said this one before. This actually was observed, uh, to me by a seminarian when I used to teach the, uh, liturgy course at, uh, Mundelein is, uh, how many kisses are there in the mass? Well, you kiss the altar on the way in and also on the way out, right? Uh, yeah. And then there's okay. the kiss of peace. Well, okay. Or how many, yeah. Uh, how many objects? So you have the altar. Oh, the book of the gospels is kissed. Book of the gospels. Right? Yep. They and used to kiss the priest's hands in the old days. Yeah. Yeah, okay. they used to do that. 
not anymore. Uh, but those, it seems that the observation the seminarian made, which I thought was pretty good, is there's a kiss of the book of the gospels, there's a kiss of the altar, and there's a kiss of sort of one's neighbor. And that these three sort of break along the lines of what we call uh, the munera Christi, or the three offices of Christ, that Christ is a prophet, and Christ, Christ is a king, and Christ is a priest. And so that's manifest. So which is which, then? Well, that, That's good. I like that. Well... Two of them are pretty obvious. So kissing Christ, uh, the altar is Christ the priest. Kissing uh, the book of the Gospels is uh, uh, Christ the prophet, the word, proclaimer. And kissing Christ in uh, others, in one's neighbor, is uh, what a king does, who's uh, at the service of other people and living with other people and helping other people get to heaven. So Next, next time you kiss Marguerite, your lovely bride, say... Receive the kiss from your king. See, see how it goes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll let you know how that goes in the next podcast. I'll, t- I'll tell you this, Chris, on Mass mm-hmm. on this past Sunday, after the kiss of peace, I look over and Isaac's just whimpering. He's like, Ooh. I was like, Isaac, what's wrong? He goes, nobody wanted to peace me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah, I don't know. Do they Are they doing the exchange of uh, the sign of peace these days? And we do it We do it within our family. Uh-huh. And then yeah. kind of like a, a hand up and a nod to those around us who are yeah. further away. Yeah, we updated our mask guidelines for the um, umpteenth time uh, recently. And that was one of the, that was one of the questions about uh, reinstituting the, uh, the exchange of peace. Did you do it? We left it up to the discretion of the local pastor. Oh, that's so oh. good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm learning the lingo these days. Hey, but just as a little aside, in the uh, Adoramus Bulletin over the past few issues, we did a lot of these uh, Q&As about how to bring back the exchange of peace, how to bring back the offtware procession or the chalice, if that ever happens, or holy water or other things like that coming out of uh, COVID times. But anybody wants to look at that. Okay, should we go on? Mm-hmm. All right, he venerates the altar with a kiss and, if appropriate, incenses the cross and the altar. So that's the last thing I want to talk about in this uh, podcast is uh, incense. What's your experience with incense? Uh, not too frequent until, you know, more recently, I would say. Well, let's go to the text. That's what we're about here. Go to number uh, 275, uh, 276, rather, Dennis, in the uh, general instruction. And there's the, the paragraph there, a couple of them, actually, on insensation. So what, what's, hey, and actually, this is a thing that's different about the, the liturgical books now than prior to the council, is that in their general instructions, and each of them have an introduction, they have kind of this theological uh, spiritual um, um, exposition first, and that's what is meant to inform all of the different uh, rules and rubrics. And so when you go, for example, at number 276, uh, where it talks about insensation, it tells you very briefly, albeit, of what it is that insensation means. And so it says, thurification or insensation is an expression. There it is again, you know, to... You know, we've all been formed in this sort of sacramental way of uh, reading liturgical books and celebrating the liturgy and understanding them. And if you try to read this stuff without that sacramental perspective, a lot of it just doesn't quite make sense. So insensation is an expression. And then it tells you an expression of what? Of reverence and prayer. 
And it roots this in uh, the scriptures. It says, as is signified in the sacred scriptures. And it gives us the reference to... Psalm 141. I just looked it up. Okay. What's it say? May my prayer be set before you like incense. May the lifting up of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. All right. So scripture itself gives some meaning to incense. It's it's as if these are visual prayers ascending to heaven. They're sacramentalizing in a sort of a, a visual and even an olfactory sort of way how uh, uh, the prayers of our hearts are rising up to God. Right. And you see how, right, this would be something that when I asked you before, how often do you see in sensation? You say, well, not too much. I think this would be one of those things that, you know, that, that could that would enhance uh, our these post-conciliar liturgies if we took advantage of uh, the full options like incense. Now, the Are other you, footnote, the yeah, biblical ahead. footnote is the angel came and stood at the altar of God with a golden censer. This is uh, Revelation 8, 3. So not only do we have an old-fashioned precedent, we also have an eschatological foretaste of we do on earth what's being done in heaven, not just doing what they used to do a long time ago. Yeah, exactly. But it is for the same reason, right? The, God is receiving the prayers of the people, and uh, the angel is bringing this uh, censer, even in heaven, that shows the prayers, a sweet smell of prayer that rises around him. And you see how much it is lacking then when this isn't in there. I mean, it just it makes it makes the the mass that much more sort of thin and low bar and anemic, and uh, uh, the sacramentality is uh, uh, kind of waning, but. It says here in that same paragraph, incense may be used optionally in any form of mass. Okay, so you can use it at any time. Although probably if you know this principle, uh, what do we call it? Progressive uh, solemnity. That uh, according to the, uh, well, to the solemnity of the event, you might have more singing, more decoration, more music, more incense. What does any form of mass mean to you, Chris? I don't. No, actually. And in fact, Dennis, I, I read that before and it, that line didn't stand out to me until right now when I was reading it. So, Would I that mean, mean the, like funerals, marriages, things like that? Is those are the different forms of mass? I don't know. What what came to my mind actually was, uh, I wonder if it is speaking to kind of the, 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 the main forms of mass in the preconciliar or the extraordinary form, like a uh, red mass or a sung mass. And I don't know if, um, right, so there were pretty strict rules about singing, uh, in a red mass or sung mass, right? You had to sing everything in the sung mass and you couldn't sing anything of the mass parts in a red mass. And I don't know if there was a similar rubric about the use of incense, like maybe it wasn't uh, allowed at all in a red mass. I don't know that, but that's that's what I wondered. But I think you might be onto something too is different forms of mass uh, here as well. In any case, uh, and it says uh, the places where you can use it during the entrance procession, which is where we are now, at the beginning of Mass to incense the cross and the altar, which again is where we are now. And then some other places uh, book, before the uh, book of the Gospels, incensing the gifts once they're on the altar and at the elevation of the chalice. So let's, uh, let's pretend that we're going to actually use incense here at the, uh, uh, as the priest and the ministers enter the sanctuary. It says, uh, the priest puts incense into the thurible and blesses it with a sign of the cross without saying anything. So notice the next time you might see this, see if that happens. Before and after an incensation, a profound bow is made to the person or object that is incensed, except for the altar during the offerings. 
And this is, hey, this is another one of these paragraphs that's really confusing. How do you swing a thurible? How do you incense? Yeah, is it a couple of swings of two, or is it three groups of three, or is it one, yeah. two, and three? We do you have, have the question. text there? Um, paragraph, what, 277? Let's see, 277, uh, one, two, third paragraph. Uh, the following three are swings. incense with three swings of a thurible, the most blessed sacrament, a relic of the Holy Cross, and images of the Lord. Offerings for the sacrifice of the mass, the altar cross, the book of the gospels, paschal candle, the priest, and the people. So all these images of Christ, right? But is and it is it like multiple sets of three? Because I see that like... Or is it just one set of three? So not like the left side, the right side, the center, like... Yeah, that's the million dollar question. Is it one, two, three? Or is it three pairs? One, two, 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 three, two? Or do certain things get one, two, three, one, two, three... One, two, three, doesn't really say. Uh, I suppose this would be another one of those to, to look at uh, in light of uh, tradition uh, and see how that would make the distinctions. But uh, it seems, I don't know what you all see, or if you've been a thurifer at Mass uh, recently, um, it seems the majority interpret this as three swings of two. So you swing in pairs, one, two, 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 and three, two. I don't know. That's... Um, what I see most often, I was trying to, this is a very nerdy liturgy thing. I was trying to watch like a midnight mass with Pope Benedict uh, to see how he did it. Because uh, Father Dennis Gill, who's an ally uh, instructor and a good friend of ours, he, he makes the case that uh, it's just one, two, three. And that's it. So, well, he, that's what it says, right? That's what it says. Three things of the thurible are used. But notice, too, it doesn't distinguish between the Blessed Sacrament uh, all the way down to the people. Everybody basically gets the same sort But, you of... know, during the confidior, when we strike our breast, it doesn't say strike your breast three times. It just says strike your breast. They strike their breast, yeah. Yeah, but know. it doesn't. But we all do it three times. My yeah. fault, my fault, my most grievous fault. There's a guy, mm -hmm. a student here is very pious, and he bangs his chest so hard you can hear it 10 pews away. It's like, bam, right? bam, bam, bam. Yeah. I admire him for his piety. <laughs> anyway, well, this gets us up. I think we're running out of time on this podcast, but this mm -hmm. at least uh, gives a little more information to this uh, sentence in the order of mass number one, that when the priest arrives at the altar, he makes a profound bow with the ministers. He venerates it with a kiss and if appropriate, incenses the cross and the altar. I think maybe when we get together next time, we'll talk about uh, what he does next, but that's what the book says. So that's what we should do. No spoilers, okay? But you know, there's a whole logic to this, right? Signification, honor, and uh, it's all very crystal clear. Gotta love it. All hey, right. Jesse. Uh, Jesse. Is it question, liturgy question time? Do we have a liturgy question? We do. Have a, we always have a liturgy okay. question. <laughs> there will never be a cessation of liturgy questions. Got it. Mail call. Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? In my case, sir, the question is totally without meaning. Okay, this week we have a question from Randy. And uh, Randy says, uh, it's a kind of a long question. I'll just read it all because I want to make sure that everybody knows uh, what we're asking and then... Chris, you can explain what he's asking to me, too, because I want to be sure as well. <laughs> oh, no. He says, as a parish MC, a question has recently that been... That means master of ceremonies. Right. Um, <laughs> if you have a question... 
I stole your line, <laughs> that's Jesse. A yeah, that's the question. That's the question. What is an MC? All right. Thank you very much. All right. Next. Next. Uh, next question. All right. As a parish MC, a question has recently been raised regarding the role of the ceremonial of bishops, and then from then on, we're going to be calling that CE for what is that? What is CE short for, Chris? Ceremoniale. Episcoporum, right. I think. So in the day-to-day life of a parish mass without a bishop present, um, obviously the germ would apply when the bishop is present or the, yeah, germ 112. And then he says, a friend who is an MC in a mass according to the rubrics of 1962 argues that the CE should inform the reading of the germ even when a bishop isn't present at the mass according to how tradition understands the role of the CE in the interpretation of the 1962 rubrics. Now you can see why I wanted to read this whole thing so we can be very clear. So he says, what role does the revised CE for the ordinary form of the mass play in how one should read the general instruction of the Roman Missal? Hmm. I think okay. I understand this, but if you could you know, explain I'm, the I'm question first. I'm going full everyman on this one. I'm taking Jesse's role. <laughs> Welcome to okay. my club. Okay. All right. So you have this thing called the Ceremonial of Bishops, and it just supply. It's it's quite a large text. It supplies uh, extra information about what to what to do when a bishop is celebrating or present. And so the question is: Should a normal parish who doesn't have a bishop, they just have a priest, why should they or should they be concerned in their parish? with the ceremonial of bishops when the mass that, or their liturgy or a sacramental that they're celebrating doesn't involve any way a bishop. Is it relevant or not? That's a question. Now, I don't know actually the history. Uh, he mentioned the history of the, the influence on uh, one having to do with the other. I don't know that so much, but I do, I, I am pretty certain that um, in point of fact, the ceremonial of bishops does inform parish level celebrations without a bishop. So I'll give you one example. Uh, it used to say, it used to be the practice, I guess this is before the third edition of the Roman Missal, that when the priest or deacon would read the gospel, he would sign himself uh, with a sign of the cross on the forehead, on the mouth or the lips and on the breast, right? And the question was, is are other people supposed to do that? Because the Missal was silent. It did not say that um, other people were supposed to do that. But it did say in the ceremonial of bishops that the deacon signs himself and all others present do the same. And so the interpretation was, well, that everybody should, in fact, make the sign of the cross on their forehead, on their lips, and on their breast. Um, well, actually, there's tons of other examples like this because if you were, especially for the, the ceremonies at the during the Triduum and Holy Week, if you compare the second edition of the Roman Missal to the present edition of the Roman Missal, you'll find there's a lot more um, uh, rubrics and instructions and details and contents, and almost all of it has come over from the ceremonial of bishops, because that was promulgated after the second edition of the Roman Missal. So, for example, there's a rubric now that says the priest may venerate the cross on Good Friday after having removed his chasuble and shoes. That's right out of the Rome, uh, out of the ceremonial of bishops. So I think in practice, and history is bearing this out, is that, yeah, I think... Um, you know, fathers shouldn't shouldn't be wearing a miter on Sunday or something like that. It, it's not relevant in all cases, but where it is applicable, I think the church's mind reads the germ in light, or it reads them in tandem 
that the ceremoniale uh, is relevant to the germ and parish celebrations. How about that? That answer is a question I didn't know that I had, but it makes sense. (laughs) It makes sense. I think that's kind of cool. And it's, I guess, along the lines of like the hermeneutic of continuity, like it's, it informs something, even though some of those elements are absent. My, my follow-up question is like, is that intentional or is that just something that kind of happened? Oh, I think it's I think it's intentional. Although you know, the, presumably these things grow organically. We say right, so they just kind of grow up together. Um, you know, maybe a couple other points. We'll wrap up this thing, but um, the there is no official English translation of the ceremony of bishops. It's only temporary, and this is going to be, I think, one of the final books that the U.S. bishops submit to be approved. And part of it is because the ceremonial has to keep in mind about 50 other ritual books and speak to that. So you have to do all these other 50 first. Now, a little, uh, uh, I don't know what the word is, uh, uh, something interesting, I think, about the ceremonial is it tells how the bishop makes the sign of the cross. And it says that he holds his hands, finger, uh, palm flat, fingers together with the, the little finger in the direction of the person or the thing he is to bless, and he makes the sign of the cross like this. And the footnote to that actually is the 1962 Roman Missal, or the uh, Ritus Servandus, I think is how it's called. Because sometimes you'll see uh, clergy want to make the sign of the cross with, you know, fingers like in a, I don't know, like an okay sign or something like that. Or the claw, the claw. Yeah, I think they're doing something that's, you know, more you know, in keeping with the 1962 Roman Missal. But actually, no, even the 1962 Roman Missal says that the sign of the cross is made with fingers together, fingers straight, palm flat. And uh, so from the 62 Missal that comes into the ceremonial of bishops, and that should inform how a priest or deacon uh, makes the sign of the cross today. Anyway, enough of that. But sometimes All the right. stuff in the, sorry to keep this going, but the stuff in the <laughs> missile is not the, is not the same as the stuff in the ceremonial of bishops, right? So which one wins? Uh, Does the ceremonial of bishops have... Find some... out next week when we answer that question <laughs> from Dennis McNamara. <laughs> well, I would think that when the next uh, edition of the ceremonial of bishops is promulgated, there won't be any contradictions, right? Because the books should be uh, at the same... Okay. Equally relevant. Can't wait. All right, Randy, I hope that answers your question. And if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. Thank you and God bless. Another episode of Liturgy Guys has mercifully come to an end. Our hosts are Chris, Get Out of My Dreams and Into My Carsons, Dennis, Big McNamara, and Jesse Y.O.Y.O. Weiler. Our producers are Michael Don't Be So Coy and Nathan First Round Draft Pickman. Our epiclesis inspector is Isabel Ringing. Our liturgical bookkeeper is Miss L. Romano. Our official aerobics instructor is Jen Uflecht. Our enforcer of choral discipline is Don B. Flat. Our official rubrics interpreter is Dewey Neal. Our self-gift provider is Kenosis. Our simplicity enforcer is Franz Siskin. And lastly, our crack team of confessors is Dewey Shrivam and Howe. And even though overstoles become understoles when they hear us say it, we are the, the Liturgy, Liturgy Guys. guys.